to Listen to the Earth, the Gone West show. This is our monthly podcast where we interview people from all walks of life. My name is Fiona Bringman and this month's guest is Cedric Gillou. And Cedric is a global climate change ambassador and development finance specialist from Ghana. And his aim is to support and educate young people and governments within his work with organisations such as the YMCA and the African Youth Commission, amongst others. And today we talk about the value of education, of climate finance, of mobilising voices for change, and the reality of pollution in Cedric's home continent, Africa. Listen to the Earth, the Gone West Show. Hello Cedric, how are you today? Hello Fiona, I'm doing good, healthy and, you know, kicking well. Very day here in Ghana. Wonderful. Can you please briefly introduce yourself and also your passion and the work that you're doing? As you already know, my name is Cedric Jelu from Accra, Ghana. I work with three different organizations. The first is the YMCA, where I serve the world movement as a global climate change ambassador, whose work is to espouse the work of the YMCA specifically in areas of addressing climate change solutions or climate change crisis by promoting youthless solutions. I also work with the African Youth Commission. That is a movement of youth groups in Africa who are focused on ensuring that youth voices are heard in all aspects of human endeavor. And finally, I work as the executive director for the Hope Performance Tennis, that is a US-based organization with an operation in Ghana focused on empowering young people through tennis. So Cedric is a very energetic, passionate person who is focused on contributing his quota to his community and country. And I'm passionate about making a contribution. I'm passionate about leaving the world a better place. And this passion has served me, this passion has you know, promoted my work across the country, Africa, and around the globe. Thank you so much. That's wonderful to hear all the work that you're doing. And what what kind of started you with all of this work or what inspired you to get into this? I got into this work from a book read, Makers of Civilization. I read this book somewhere in 2004 when I was when I was in the secondary school, given to me by a teacher. And after reading this book, I came to realize how different people had contributed in improving the state of the world. And so the book titled Makers of Civilization, the contributions of different people. And I said to myself that if these people had come to contribute to making the world a better place, then what would become of me? growing up and when I get to you know, certain stages of my life. So I, I yearn for that moment that I want to also put my name out there as somebody who has made my community a better place, as somebody who had contributed to the development of humanity. That was my initial inspiration. And it is still the inspiration that has fired me up till now, promoting me and causing me to be on that drive to constantly make a contribution. It is that passion that has made me to volunteer over 15 years of work for different organizations and ensuring that young people have a voice and young people's contributions are made. 
And so let's talk about that, giving young people a voice. How are you able to champion young people's voices and also young African voices in what you do? Firstly, I must confess that I'm a grassroots person. That is to mean that I'm the kind of young person who is able to relate to the base of our society. I'm saying this because I'm also a young man who has been at the apex of decision-making, like, you know, international conferences, UN. So sometimes there's a disconnect about somebody who goes to the high-level meetings but cannot relate to the ground. By going to the grassroots, listening to my peers, people whose voices cannot be heard, and being able to take these voices from the grassroots and taking it to the national discourse, bringing it to the continental stage, I'm talking about Africa, and even projecting these voices at the international stage. For instance, at the United Nations, at COP26, to COP27, and other global platforms. So that is one way I do this. The other way I do this is to make sure that I empower young people to speak for themselves. There are many young people who have the capacity to speak, yet they don't have the opportunity. So I organize forums, workshops, seminars, I bring together stakeholders where I bring the leaders in our communities, ministers of state, district chief executives, CEOs, to the communities when these young people will speak to them. So I bridge that gap. So that's the second thing, by bringing the leaders of our societies to a place where the young people can speak to them. And then also, I engage in projects and programs. You know, what use is it when you go to speak at programs or bring leaders to speak to young people and you don't have projects being implemented to address the concerns of these young people? So I write to organizations, I put up proposals where we get grants and funding to implement projects in schools, colleges, communities, you know, where young people can be able to see that their concerns are being implemented through projects. So these are the three key ways I do by ensuring that I give young people voices and their voices mean something. Mm, and it's really important you talked also about bridging the gap between that political speak and the on-the-ground work, making a change. And so I wondered also what your opinion is on the conference of the parties, COP26, COP27 going on this year. I think that this COP is a fine opportune moment for everyone, especially Africa. You look at the theme of the COP, focusing on key areas like adaptation and loss and damage. And I'm satisfied about the, the architecture of this particular COP because whilst we look at the you know, grandiose issues of mitigation, it is important to keep the world living, to keep the world going. And so we cannot ignore the fact that people have been affected, people have lost so much, and the continuous devastating impact of the climate crisis cannot be ignored. And so if this COP is focusing on issues of adaptation and loss and damage, it comes to me as a great, you know, satisfaction, specifically for Africa and other you know, in Asian countries who are badly affected by the climate crisis. I'm also gratified about the fact that this particular COP has created that opportunity for young people, you know, to have a pavilion to speak directly to themselves, among themselves, 
and among uh, to their leaders, world leaders, on what young people can do and what is lacking. Talking about what what is lacking, I think that we have already received, you know, uh, information about how the matters of Africa is not put into specificity. For instance, you know, Africa is a country with special needs. Yes, still the international architecture of COP is refusing to recognize that. It must be put on record that Europe and uh, part of the Americas are extensively developed country. However, Africa is already in deficit. We are talking about, you know, transition, you know, energy transition. We're talking about energy transition in part of Africa where we don't even have the energy. Africa is in energy poverty. I have, you know, grand aunties, grandparents who are still not, you know, sleeping in light. They have to wait for the sunshine to come daytime before they see light. I'm talking about people who still use wood. They don't have clean energy in the first place. So we need to recognize the special needs of Africa and be able to look at how that can first of all be addressed before we move to the next stages. And so it is important that we're looking at issues about adaptations, about energy transitions. We need to recognize where people of Africa can benefit from their resources and then to be able to project that into the whole global architecture of addressing the climate crisis. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially when there are sanctions put on various different countries in the world. And yet we have to take into account the kind of colonialist history as well. Countries like Britain and America have have advanced massively in their tech and but also con- contributed massively towards pollution across the world. And so that needs to be something that's that's considered. Can you expand on the effects of environmental destruction in in the continent of Africa in particular? When we look at the environmental destruction from Africa, it is a very sad situation, especially when the destruction is not caused by Africans and is not caused for the benefit of Africans. For instance, you look at the oil production in Nigeria. How come? that such, you know, a muscular country in Africa, producing, you know, such barrels, millions, you know, of oil, is still deprived. And there are states in Nigeria that are still, you know, lacking on, on the poverty line. And even in places where this oil is explored, there are people who cannot even feed themselves. Yes, still the pollution that is going on in terms of uh, this discovery or this exploration of oil is unimaginable. You know, you have big organizations from the global north coming to explore these resources and taking it out of Africa. Look at Ghana, my own country. I tell you that when I was a young person, I used to walk to the riverside and I used to drink water from the river. This is water that is not, nothing is done to it. I mean, it is pure. This is clean water. And we drink it, we use it to cook. Now I tell you that nobody in Ghana will dare go to those rivers anymore. Water that you could see in your face, you know, like a mirror in that water has now turned to, you know, like chocolate, chocolate uh, a drink because of the pollution 
Now there are parts of Africa that you cannot even move around because of the pollution in the air system. What saddens me is that this pollution is not even caused by Africans, for Africans. This pollution is in exploration of oil, exploration of mineral resources, you know, it's been done by the global north and taken away, you know, to the advanced countries. Yet still, these are the same people who come to COP. These are the same people who come and tell Africans that we should do ABC. Yet still, what they are doing in Africa is unthinkable. They are protecting the resources of their countries, and yet still, they bring these, you know, uncalled for, uh, unethical attitudes to the global south, just because they think that Africa is not developing, or African politicians just need some money to be quiet. So I look at the pollution in Africa, it saddens me a lot, and it tells me that African leaders must do more. Look to the West, look at America, look at London, look at Germany, look at the skyscrapers they built, look at the underground tunnels, look at the railway lines. Anytime I travel to America and you know Europe, I see what a marvel. They've exploited to their benefit. But look at Africa. There's constant exploration of gold, of bauxite, manganese, carbon. I mean, all the things you can think about, oil, but yet still, Africa has nothing to show for it. It is a very unfortunate situation. And I think that leaders like myself who are now coming up are looking at this situation and saying, no, never again will this continue. And that we must begin to position ourselves to address it, to ensure that first of all, we eradicate and we stop this pollution. But even if there must be some sort of pollution as a result of human development, then it must be towards the direct benefit of Africans. It's very saddening, but it's also really uh, amazing to hear you speak so passionately about it and and to hear that you're mobilizing voices for change. This issue kind of becomes more than just an issue of planetary destruction. It's a matter of sharing protecting resources and a matter of human rights. And do you do you feel then that when you're addressing these things, when you're speaking up um, for human rights and for change to our planet, for an end to pollution, that you are heard, received well, or do you feel often that it's a struggle? It is a mixed feeling. Sometimes it is a struggle. Sometimes I see myself and other colleagues in Cameroon, South Africa, in Kenya, I mean, across the continent. And I can say that there are many instances where our advocacy, our activism has really elicited the right partnership. When I spoke at COP26, at the Bloomberg Philanthropist, you know, global concert, at the Glasgow Royal Concert Hall, after that speech, the YMCA made it clear to me that a number of organizations have approached the YMCA on partnerships. Those partnerships have brought about a lot of projects, you know, across Africa and other parts of the world. I'm satisfied about that. As I speak to you, we at the African Commission are implementing, you know, projects in eight African countries on ensuring that the African narratives are heard, especially indigenous people, women and girls. And so there is a relief that we are making some form of breakthroughs as a result of our engagement and that world leaders, global players and stakeholders are listening. But I must also confess that we are not making the kind of entire progress that we want to make because there is constantly some kind of pushback because, you know, this is a struggle. This is a struggle because when people are making profit in Africa and you want to ensure that uh, they stop their operations, that is going to affect their financial books. 
You don't expect them to smile to you and clap to you. You don't expect that the minister in my country who is benefiting from, you know, some Western contract will just smile at you when you are raising concerns about the pollution and uh, the mining sector. And so there is also a pushback. So we are managing both the struggle and the progress we are making. But nevertheless, we are constantly aware that that is how things would appear to be because the human society has always been a constant struggle between the good and the bad, a constant struggle between progress and conservatism. has been a struggle between you know, those who are benefiting and those who are being victimized. But we will not give up. We will constantly pursue because it has been in the pursuit of humanity to be consistent regardless of the pushback that humanity faced. Our generation will be a generation that will actually come out and say that we did not give up. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. So you touched briefly upon climate finance there, and that can be a really important way to make change because obviously money holds such weight, finance holds such weight. You know, we were just talking about the inequality there of different nations, different countries, uh, and a lot of that can be also to do with with finance and wealth. So, yeah, may I ask you a bit about um, what you think we can do to make finance more green? I will start from, you know, quoting two famous proverbs from my country, on finance. The first is that that which is beautiful is made by money. And the second proverb that I would like to quote is that there's no advice or there's no counsel or there's no progress that is more progressive or sustaining that this is finance. Take and go and work with. That is to place finance at the heart of all great solutions. That beyond the talks, beyond the expertise, beyond the technical know-how, beyond all the ideas, beyond the innovations, we need finance to drive solutions. Whether that's carbon market, carbon trading, adaptation, mitigations, finance is the nucleus or the catalytic force and driving those solutions. And so for me, it is important to be able to mobilize both domestic and foreign finance and to be able to mobilize both private and public finance. We are not just going to mobilize any kind of finance. We are mobilizing clean finance in the blue economy. We are mobilizing finance that is sustainable, sources of finance that you know, promote global development so we will not take finance from destructive sources. It is important to be able to mobilize finance to drive youth-led solutions. Young people have been at the forefront of solutions from generations to generation. When we are confronted with the global climate crisis, it is young people who we must still look up to because yes, they face you know, the brand of the impact. And these same young people have the solutions. They have the solutions in their communities. They have their solutions in their countries. So it is important for us to mobilize these funds and give it to young people, to be able to put young people at the front and center of the solutions. And in doing so, to be able to bridge the inequality gap, 
in doing so to be able to provide some form of equity, provide employment for these young people, and to be able to harness the creativity of these young people, the innovation of these young people, and direct it towards development, to be able to implement projects that will address the climate impact they face in their communities. What does that mean on a practical scale? Because I think it's really important to also address the issues through climate finance. But obviously, with the distribution, unequal distribution of wealth, then that can be something that seems like it's only accessible on a grand scale. So how can individuals make a change in the world of climate finance? Of all your questions, I want to thank you deeply for this particular question. When we hear of $100 billion, when we hear of $3 billion, when we hear of all the figures being shoot up in the air and graphs being projected, it is only accessible to government and accessible to these big civil society organizations. And that is where the problem is. And that is what your question has come you know, to project. And what that means in practical terms is that there are groups, youth organizations in Indonesia, in Kenya, in Ghana, in all parts of Asia and Africa, who are confronted with a crisis, who have the solutions, but some of them are not even registered as an organization. There are these youth groups in the communities who at best know the problem and the solution, but these are groups who cannot even assess these funds because of the technicalities of these funds. And we're talking about the Global Climate Fund. Can you believe that sometimes it takes between two to five years just to be accredited, just to be accredited to benefit from the Global Climate Fund, just to be able to satisfy that you should receive funding. I mean, the funding has not even come yet. I'm talking about paperwork. And how can you comprehend this? That tsunami or flood has hit part of the Philippines or my country, Ghana. And youth groups are talking about receiving basic support to provide for relief capacity. It will take them two good years for paperwork by which everybody would have died. Look at COVID. When COVID confronted us, look at how the world moved rapidly to address it. Why can't we have the same kind of, you know, global mobilization in terms of funds to address climate change? And so, for me, it is unacceptable. The technicalities of these things is unacceptable. So I'm happy about questions. So the practicality is that these multinational and global climate fund and these big corporations should simplify their processes, should break the procedures down so that individuals, so that youth groups and organizations be able to be accredited and can have access to these funds be given the resources to implement. It does not require those cumbersome technicalities. They should break those $100 billion into small grant of $10,000, $15,000, $20,000, and put it you know, into working groups of young people. Give it to village, give it to schools, give it to communities, give it to civil organizations for them to implement projects. Because I tell you truly that some of these solutions that you see, they are not solutions that are, you know, 
uh, so complex. These are basic solutions that people know in their areas because of the indigenous knowledge that they have. But the World Bank will be sitting up there. The IFC will be sitting up there and looking at everything from global perspective, technical perspective. When the solution is as simple as A, B, C. However, to implement that solution, it is taking people at the World Bank five years, three years, just to review simple three-page documents. Can you believe this? It is about time that these world leaders begin to look at the alternative implementation measures. Why can't you give this small grant to implement this project directly in their communities? So this is what I'm advocating for. So you were talking about delayed funds and also overcomplicated solutions in certain cases from higher up organizations or, or more global organizations. And I wonder whether you think there are any kind of darker forces behind these delay tactics or do you think it's more just a lack of organization? I think that it is the lack of organization and it is because of the way that this whole system is, is structured. You know, you have people who are managing global funds who are living in ivory towers. They don't know what is happening down there. Can you believe that I went to a meeting in Washington and one of these people from this organization was telling me that they see these things on TV and sometimes it worries them. Of course, when you see it on TV, you don't even know what is happening. If you're working at this multinational organization, who is responsible for giving funds? You must reference your experience on television. Then I, I, I think you don't have, you have any business being there. These people should be living with us. They should be living in the communities with us. Some of these offices, global offices, should be taken to areas who are affecting drought so they can understand what it means when they say drought. Then they'll know that there's something called, you know, uh, emergency. So it is about how these organizations are structured. They have layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of working structures. Committees, hidden under committees. Technical working group, envoy, research this, research that. I am an academic person, so I respect that there must be some form of due diligence that should be made. But for God's sake, do they understand what emergency means? Living in ivory towers, living in air condition, you know, big flat, driving big cars, having, enjoying benefit upon benefit, medical benefit, travel allowance, family benefit. So they don't understand what it means when somebody is hungry. They don't understand what it means when people are dying. Look, Fiona, Fiona, let me ask you a question. If you have a child and you are cooking and you just go to the dining hall to get something and you hear your child from the kitchen crying and you notice that something has fell from the fire and you know what fell was, let's say, hot water and you heard your child crying and you knew that it is was, it was the hot water that has spilled over on your child. Would you go and open a laptop and Google how to save my child? Would you pick a phone and call even a fire service first? No. The first thing you do is you run to the scene. 
And when you run to the scene, the first thing you do is to pick your child from her. And the first thing you do is to see how to administer first aid processes of calling extra or foreign help will not even come to your mind. So what I'm saying is that these people working at these global farms, we respect their work, but it is about time that they need to design some of these funds to be able to reflect what emergency means so that when you hear that people are dying of hunger or you hear that people are dying of tsunami or floods, you don't even think about proposals. All you do is to supply food, supply relief items, supply emergency. Just do what you must do to save human life first. Why is humanity in these people? There's no humanity because I tell you because they are in ivory towers. They don't know what is happening down there. So they need to reorganize themselves in terms of working structure. One of the things that a lecturer told me at my master's education is that education should not just make you to be working by the books or just to follow the textbooks and say, these are the methods, method one, method two, method three. And then you go to method four. No, for God's sake, you need to use your mind to know that sometimes you can zoom into method four even without going to method one because method four is a life-saving situation. And so if you want to go to the first method before you come to two, three, by the time you go to method four, Fiona's daughter would have been dead by then. So quickly move to method four and save the goddamn child before you come to method one of asking what happened and where is police. So we are saying that they should reorganize themselves. Because I speak not for myself, but the many, many victims who constantly ask me, Cedric, what are these people doing there? Do they understand the situation on the ground? And clearly, you don't understand it. Mm. Mm. It's very, it's very important because also this this apathy that develops, this lack of action is is like you say, a lack of direct experience, a lack of connection, a lack of being able to to see, to really feel what people are experiencing and therefore to have compassion, to have empathy. Also, the way that you speak with such passion, the way that you use story, the way we use parable to help people get an insight into that, help people develop their compassion, their empathy, and help to motivate them towards change. So thank you. Thank you. I also want to thank you sincerely for this opportunity, primarily because as a young advocate and speaker, rarely do you get such opportunity for a global organization like Gone West to be able to project your voice. I'd like to thank you, Fiona, for this and to thank your entire team for this. Thank you greatly for coming to speak to me. So we're coming towards the end of the interview and I'd like to ask you a few quick fire questions. Quick fire questions are questions that should be answered in one word, if at all possible. First question is, what makes you feel most alive? That I'm able to make a contribution. And how can we counter environmental destruction? Uh, how can we counter pollution? To take action. Very nice. Again, thank you, Cedric. It's been really a joy speaking to you and to, to hear the passion with which you speak is really inspiring. Thank you too. God bless you. 
Cedric's impassioned calls to action was empowering to listen to. And his insights on how we can make a change for good as individuals and calling to action organisations with power and funding to invest in solutions and to help address unequal wealth distribution and the unequal exposure and impacts of pollution. If you want to hear some more about Cedric's work and also about the organisations that he works within, you can find more at africanyouthcommission.org or AY Commission on Twitter. You can also let us know your thoughts about this episode by engaging with us on Instagram at GoneWestgram or finding us on our website at GoneWest.com. Listen to the Earth, the Gone West Show.